1: Hi, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. From Ken Adam to Max
2: Zorin, with occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand,
1: Eon or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on
3: podcastjanesbondaz.co.uk.
1: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. If you want to support the podcast, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond Z and you can find the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where we are currently exploring the letter M and we are joined by another very special guest. My name is Tom Butler and joining me on this episode, it's the man with the golden grin, it's Mr ben- Mister Brendan Duffy.
2: Very nice, hello.
1: Bungled that one again. Again. Um, and, our, and, our, <laughs> and our special guest this week is a man who was the executive assistant of Sir Roger Moore for 15 years and is the author of Raising an Eyebrow, My Life with Roger Moore. It's
3: Mr Gareth Owens, welcome. Good afternoon, good evening or good morning, wherever you are, whenever you're listening. And yes, M for more. So that's why I'm here. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yes. We're working through the alphabet and we have uh, a couple of episodes coming up on Roger Moore, actually. Um, but be- but before we get to that, we thought we'd uh, invite someone on who uh, knew him very well. Um, and, yeah, just learn a bit more about what he was like um, as a person in the foreword of your book, uh, Gareth, written by Brit Eklund, She says that you knew Roger better than anyone, even some of his wives, (laughs) that you were the best of friends. Is that a fair summation?
3: Uh, Outside the bedroom, yes, I I knew him probably better than his wives, but only because I spent so much time with him. And, uh, you know, when, when you spend every day of your working life with someone, you do tend to get to know them pretty well. I'm sure you
1: do. I don't want to obviously delve over too much of of the material in the book because I just would recommend anyone who's listening to this to read it for themselves and learn about your story and how you came to meet Roger and how you came to work for him. But um, would you mind telling us about the first time you met Roger and what that experience was like? Um, Did he live
3: up to your expectations? Well, yeah, they say never meet your hero, don't they? Um, It was actually at and I think this is in the book, I hope so, Uh, it was actually at Desmond Flewellyn's memorial service, which I think was around about the year 2000, uh, uh, just behind um, um, Harrods, actually. There was a lovely church, and afterwards we went to a hotel for a sort of drink and a nibble, and Roger and his wife Christina were there. And I'd never met him up until that point. You know, I had an office at Pinewood. He was based at Pinewood, but we'd never sort of crossed paths. And so I, I, I sort of went over because his, his, his PA, Doris Spriggs, knew I was going to be there and said, you know, Roger's going, so do go over and say hello. So I went over and I said, Roger, you know, if if you don't mind me calling you Roger, um, Doris Spriggs said I should say hello. And he said, oh, who are you? I told him he went, ah, oh, yes, yes, yes. So he, he was very charming. I mean, he had 20, 30, 40 people queuing up to shake his hand and have a photograph with him, despite it being a memorial service and he was equally charming to everybody, you know, he he had time for everybody, even though he probably thought to himself, oh my goodness me, you know, when's this, when's this queue of people going to end?
1: Must have been quite an occasion, Desmond's uh, memorial service.
3: Yeah, I mean, Desmond was a really lovely man, and I'd known him for quite a few years, and um, it was a very tragic end to his life. And he was such a fun character, and, you know, you've probably heard the stories that Everybody used to sort of wind him up a little bit and Roger would take the piss by changing his dialogue. And, um, you know, Desmond was a good sport. And he was very, very kind to me because we were fellow Welshmen. You know, I'm Welsh, he was Welsh. uh, I stayed with him and his wife and uh, had lunch with him several times. And he came up to North Wales when I was a student here to help me out. And um, I went to his funeral, which was in, um, in Battle, just outside Hastings. Uh, which is a very sad event. But obviously, the m- memorial service was a much more celebratory and happier event. And Roger was there to talk about working with him, of course, and tell some very funny stories. So yeah, it, it was a sort of a sad day. But, you know, sad in a good way, if you know what I mean, you know, we weren't shedding tears of sorrow, we were shedding tears of joy, you know, we were happy that Desmond had been in our lives
2: yeah there was so much to celebrate as well he'd he'd worked with so many people across so many years hadn't he so it was
3: well yeah I mean up up until that point he was the only actor to work with all the Bonds yeah you know because he'd he'd worked with everybody you know George Lazenby Pierce Brosnan Roger Sean Timothy Dalton and he was the one continuity if you like throughout the the series and and he just loved working on the films I mean on his last The World Is Not Enough he invited me down to the set which is just around the corner from my office. And he said, come down. And he was sitting there in his chair and sort of laughing, saying, you know, John Cleese can't remember his bloody lines. <laughs> and uh, it was quite fun quite fun to be there. Um, yeah, I mean, he loved m- making the films. And I think the poignant thing was in interviews, because his book came out around that time, his autobiography, and people were saying, will you continue making the Bonds? And he said, yes, so long as the producers want me and the good Lord doesn't. And unfortunately, the good Lord won through. Before we fall into any pitfalls, Gareth,
1: can I ask you, what's what's the number one question people will want to know about Roger Moore when they
3: sort of come to learn about your association with him? Oh, gosh. Uh, a lot of people say to me, was he as nice as he appeared to be? Because he had a reputation of being nice. And, you know, you don't build up a reputation of being nice if you're horrible, do you? <laughs> You know, of course he was, nice. he was nice, he made time for everybody and he always, you know, he was always interested to meet people, even though sometimes he was very tired, he was a bit fed up and, you know, often he'd have to go to dinners and, you know, you'd be there for hours on end and just really want to leave, but um, he was very gracious and that, that's what I always remember, you know, he made time for everybody, just as he made time for me that day I first met him and, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a mark of the man really.
1: How long after your first meeting did it take before you were then working for
3: Roger? Uh oh gosh. Um probably about eighteen months I think, or maybe nearly two years. Uh he'd written he kind I I wrote a book at that point, my first book in the year two thousand called The Pinewood Story, which is all about Pinewood Studios. And he kindly wrote the forward. So that was really my sort of way in to say, you know, I'm Gareth, I wrote that book if you remember. And, um, and I wrote a couple of other books after that, one being about the films of Roger Moore, because Doris did say to me, look, Roger won't be interested. He's always resisted writing his autobiographies Had many offers of people saying, you know, we'd like to write a book about you. And he's always said, no, thank you very much. Well, and I said, well, I'm going to write this book, or I'm writing this book, and it's really going to be about his films and career. It's not going to be about his private life. There'll be a little bit of, you know, yes, he, he married Louisa, and yes, he married Doric, his but I won't linger on that. And Doris said to me, uh, she's very, very sweet, Doris, and she said to me, I don't want to know anything about it till you're finished. Show me when you finish, but don't tell me anything about it, because if you tell me, I'll have to tell Roger and uh, and that was a nice way of saying you know don't mess it up you know get the finished book out to me so I, I i finished this book i sent it to her she was impressed she sent it to roger and the publisher at the time said would he write an introduction and i said i don't know i don't you know it seems a bit awkward to say you know would you write an introduction to this book i've written about you um but he said yeah what do you want me to write and i said well can you just say Whatever you want to say. Anyway, he wrote something, and the publisher said, oh, no, um, we probably need somebody else to write it, otherwise it looks like a hagiography where, you know, you've written about this star, and and he's endorsing it, and, you know, it's all a bit sycophantic. <laughs> so uh, so Andrew McLaglan wrote the foreword. Um, and I'd written a couple of other books after that one as well, and I knew, I suppose, I, I got to know Doris Spriggs quite well, and she knew... I knew my way around the film industry a little bit, and I knew my way around the Bond world a little bit. And she kept saying to me, you know, I'm getting old, I'm going to retire, I'm packing it in, I've had enough. And I'd say, oh, no, Doris, don't pack it in, you know, you've got years ahead of you yet. I mean, she was 78, for God's sake. I mean, (laughs) it it (laughs) wasn't as though she was 50. Um, But um, Doris, one day, I, 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 I think I popped down to show her something, she asked me, the thing with Doris is she always had a typewriter and a fax machine. That was the height of technology for Doris. She wouldn't have a computer. She wouldn't have the internet. But she quite often phoned me up and said, would you do me a favor and look up something for me on, on that internet thing? So I popped down, I'd print it off, pop, you know, pop down and give it to her. Anyway, this one particular day she said, I, I, I really have had enough. I'm, I've decided after Christmas I'm packing it in. And I sort of said, well, you know, if you're looking for a replacement, I work cheap. And she never said anything. So I thought, oh, fine, you know. That joke backfired. (laughs) Um, And then a couple of days later, she phoned me and she said, "Um, would you be interested? And I said, what do you mean? Would you be interested in the job? And I said, well, of course I would be, yeah, why? She said, well, I told Roger that I'm going. He didn't like it. And I said, look, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to close the office down, pack up, or do you want me to find you someone? And he said, well, you know, Doris, I, I've been at Pinewood for many years. It's it's my sort of home from home. It's a base. And um, he said, could you find somebody? And really that was, you know, that was the phone call to see if I was interested. And I said, yeah, you know, very interested. And she said, right, well, I'll tell Roger then. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll get him to get in touch with you. And I said, well... What about the interview? Oh, no, there's no need for an interview. You're, you're fine. You're perfect. That's, that's good. I'll tell him. And that's really how it came about. And I got in touch with him, and we you know, had a little chat. And he was very pleasant. You know, he just said, I take Doris's word. She says, you're good. That suits me. That's good. And it's a bizarre way to get a job, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. a sort of... Um, if I told somebody that, they wouldn't believe me. You know, no interview. No sort of... Um, privacy document or you know one of these sort of you know you're not to say anything or you know your your hands will be cut off there was none of that because he he trusted me and I think we we just instantly got on with each other so it's a sort of bizarre way into it but that's how I got the job
2: so what was that first day like I mean you must have been some nerves going through
3: well yeah because I actually actually um Doris had been in her office Roger's office for 20 odd years and um, we'd agreed that she was going to leave on the 5th of April. She wanted to leave at the end of the tax year. And I would take over. I <laughs> know. And, uh, and I would take over. I think that was on a Friday and I would take over on the Monday. So I asked Pinewood Maintenance. I said, do me a favour. I said, that, that office needs a, a lick of paint. Would you, you, know, would you do me a favour? And just give it a bit of a tidy up. Well, the workman went in and started sort of tidying the wall and all the plaster fell off. <laughs> because it hadn't been touched for 25 years. So I couldn't actually get into the office. Um, so I was still in my office at Pinewood, and I had the phone calls rerouted. And, um, and yeah, you know, Roger phoned me that first morning, and we had a chat, and he said, you know, you'll you'll probably get, you know, a, a few offers occasionally for me, and not very often, and the odd inquiry, and you'll be hearing from UNICEF, and please introduce yourself. Did Doris leave you a list of contacts? I said yes. He said, "Please introduce yourself to everybody. Let them know." And and I said, "Well, actually, there's a letter arrived from a production company in Italy this morning." And he said, "Oh yeah." I said, "They want you to do a chat show in Rome." Oh yeah. Uh, he said, it's, "He said I've done Italian TV shows. They go on and on for hours. You just sit there for hours on end." Is there? He said, "Is there? Is there a fee?" I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, thirty thousand euros." Now, 30,000 euros, I mean, I'd fall off my chair if somebody offered me that to do an interview. He said, oh, I can't be bothered. He said, I've done it all before. No, say thanks very much, but no thanks. I said, you just turned down 30,000 euros for doing an interview. Oh, okay. Um, this is going to be fun. Though. So... <laughs> Um, and then I, I sort of go, started going through the fan mail and you know, introduced myself to everybody so it was quite a sort of a nice introduction to the job because you know, I eased myself in I didn't just sort of get thrown in and, and Doris was very helpful because she left me a list of contacts of people You know, his, his travel agent the hotel he liked to stay at the driver he liked to use and, and, you know, and she always said just phone me if you need anything and, and we kept in touch she, she only died two months ago and we kept in touch and we saw each other regularly. And uh, the ironic thing is after she retired, she got a, a laptop and was a wizard on email. And she'd resisted for all those years. But uh, no, she, she was absolutely brilliant. And from reading your
1: book, it's clear that you were a, a James Bond fan uh, mm. preceding working for Roger. Um, and I love hearing about the that era, the sort of the 90s as being a Bond fan, because it was... There seem to be so few barriers between uh, the fans and, you know, the Bond people that you you went to conventions at like Pinewood. You knew Walter mm. Gotel, all these amazing people that we sort of talk about now um, and sort of revere. But like you were crossing paths with these people on a regular
3: basis. Well, yeah, I mean, Walter was my landlord for a year. Yeah. And again, that's another bizarre story because um, I organised an event at Pinewood. I won't go into the details, but I organised an event at Pinewood. And Walter Cattell came along as a guest. And um, he sort of sat me down and said, you know, how old are you? And I said, well, at the time, I think I was about 20. And he said, you've done all this, and what are you doing after university? And I said, well, I'd, I'd like... To try and get into film production you know that's what i'm keen on doing and uh, i've got a couple of scripts and with a friend we've set up a small company and he said well i've got this script um would you be interested in reading it well, of course i said yes you know and he said so w- w- what's going to happen then and i said well i'm hoping to move down to london after university oh right right okay anyway he gave me the script we met for dinner we had a chat and um he said, so what's happening? And I said, well, I've managed to raise a bit of money and I've had a chat with the managing director at Pinewood and he's offered to rent me an office at a fairly decent rate. So the idea is to move down to Pinewood and um, be based there for, a well, basically till the money ran out. And he said, so where are you going to stay? And I said, I don't, I don't know, Walter. I said, I'll probably just stay in a B&B for a week or two and then sort of, you know, have a hunt around. He said, well, we've got a spare room. You're welcome to come and stay here. And I said, "Oh, really?" And he said, "Well, of course. You know, there'll be a charge." So, okay. uh, but, uh, but uh, so I said, "Well, yeah, that'd be nice." And I moved in for what I thought would be, you know, maybe three, four weeks, and I stayed for a year, and um, came home every evening, and Walter would be sitting there in his chair, in his armchair, with a, a large scotch, and start telling me stories. So, you know, quite another, you know, another quite bizarre. I suppose set of circumstances that brought me to live with Walter and his wife for a year and, and they were both lovely that's a,
1: a amazing um when you talk to Roger then um obviously you were working for him but was there a lot of time spent just you know with Roger reminiscing telling you stories all that sort of stuff
3: yeah he would I mean if he wasn't particularly busy I mean normally if if he dropped Christina at the hairdressers for instance he had a couple of hours to kill. So he liked to just phone up and have a bit of a gossip. And uh, and he'd chat. I mean, and when I stayed with him, you know, we we quite often sit out on the on the balcony and just have a cup of coffee or something in the evening. And he'd just chat. And I remember once in Monaco, we'd been out for dinner, and we sat, Christina had gone to bed, and we sat outside on the, on the little balcony having a coffee or something. And uh, he started talking about Gregory Peck. And he said, you know, I'm so lucky. He said, you know, Gregory Peck was a hero of mine. And I used to go to the Odeon in Stretton to see him on the big screen. And he said, and I sometimes think, my God, he was a friend, he became a friend of mine. And I I made a film with him and I used to stay with him and his wife. And he said, I have to pinch myself sometimes. He said, you know, Frank Sinatra again, he's another one. And, And David Niven, he said, I idolize David Niven. And I'm sitting there listening to him telling me about the film stars he grew up with thinking, Actually, this is sort of happening with me now. I'm sitting here with you, <laughs> having grown up with you, and you're telling me stories. I mean, it, really quite bizarre. So he's very humble in that respect, and he could never quite believe his luck. And um, you know, he'd often, you know, any any opportunity to talk about friends and colleagues, uh, he, he'd love to tell stories, and and would never really forget how lucky he was to get to know them. So. Uh, that was always interesting. And what did
1: he think of the, the Bond films in general? They obviously must have loomed large in his life.
3: Well, he's very, yeah, he was very proud to be Bond. You know, he never tried to distance himself. Um, you know, Sean Connery, for instance, you know, as you know, he, he, he sort of wanted to put that behind him. He didn't want to be typecast as Bond. And Roger said, you know, when somebody comes along and offers you a part like this and pays you a lot of money, you know, gives you a great financial security and you have great fun doing it, and then you're able to go on to places like working for UNICEF and use that celebrity for the betterment of children's lives. He said, what is there not to like? You know, he said, I can walk into restaurants and get a, you know, a pretty good table, and, you know, everybody's nice to me. And he said, you know, that's fantastic. So he loved Bond, and he would always be a... I mean, he was a great ambassador for Bond. He would always be supportive. He never saw Timothy Dalton's films... Well, for quite a few years, he hadn't seen them. And then Pierce Brosnan came along. He saw, I think he said that he saw the first reel of Goldeneye when he went to visit the set. But it wasn't really until Daniel Craig came along that he started getting into the Bonds again. You know, he he said, I feel safe to watch them now because he was always afraid that, you know, when he gave up and Timothy Dalton took over, he said, it wouldn't be very gracious of me if someone said, what do you think of Timothy Dalton, to say, oh, I didn't think he's very good. He said, so the best way to avoid answering is to say, I haven't seen the films. So he avoided the films. Same with Piers Brosnan. He avoided the films. And then later in life, of course, having seen them, he could say, yeah, you know, I really enjoyed them. He went to um, the premiere of Die Another Day. And uh, when he came out... I saw him and I said, what did you think of that? And he said, I'll speak to you tomorrow. So he was very <laughs> diplomatic. Um, but, uh, but he wouldn't say anything negative in the press. You know, that was the thing. He would always sort of smile and, and find something positive to say. And, uh, and he liked George Lazenby. You know, he, he saw George several times socially and he thought he was a good bond. And he said, unfortunately, George got the wrong advice. And, you know, that, that sort of brought about his downfall, as we all know. So, yeah, very proud to be Bond and very supportive of all the Bonds and and certainly very helpful to the producers over the
2: years. I think that's the sort of mantra we've followed with this podcast as well in terms of just really seeing the positives in in Bond. Mm. Whereas you can get people that don't and they pick out negatives, but we're always celebrating the the, the world of Bond. Mm.
3: Well, you know, it's it's something to be celebrated. and, And, you know, Roger okay, some of his films weren't as good as the others. But, you know, he said, you know, quite often it, it, it fell to the director and to the writer to come up with something of very, very short notice. You know, uh, you couldn't use a certain location, so you had to adapt. And, and he said, you know, it's a constantly evolving situation. And, uh, and he was very proud of being part of that whole family because they all worked as a family. And, you know, everybody came together at lunchtime and they all sat around the table eating lunch. There was none of this, I'm going to my trailer and my personal chef is going to prepare me a meal. Um, you know, it was very much a family, and you know, and Roger loved to take the Mickey out of people as well. And everybody loved him for that because he put them at their ease, you know, particularly if you're a, a new actor walking onto the set where, say, you've got a scene with Bernard Lee and Desmond Llewellyn, they all know each other. And you're a new actor coming onto the set, and you think, My God, you know, everybody knows each other. And then Roger would sort of very gently take the fun out of them, I suppose, and and they immediately start laughing and all be at ease and and that was part of the magic of him being on set you know and and he would certainly come in if somebody was on set for the first time he might not be in the scene but he would certainly come in to welcome them and to to sort of say you know welcome to the set and everything and um and i think that endeared him to so many people and so many directors and producers love working with him
1: did he ever watch back his own
3: bond movies yeah, he did sometimes simply because Christina hadn't seen many of them. So, right. if there was one on, you know, on ITV4 or something on a Sunday afternoon, and he'd be flicking through his Skybox, he'd say, Oh, look, here's me. And she'd go, Oh, darling. And she'd come in the room, and he'd say, Right, that's enough. No, no, no. She said, No, no I like watching. So, uh, he'd sit through the films and watch them with her. And, and I think he was asked to do the commentaries as well when the films came out. Um, I think it was around about two thousand two, two thousand and three, when they came out for a special edition, and uh, and he said yeah, so he watched them all through then too, and did a commentary on them all, all the way through. We had
1: yeah, we had John Cork on the podcast, and he did the podcast um, the mm. um, DVD commentaries with Roger, and he was telling us, you know, you would obviously just feed him a a tidbit of trivia, and then he would just go off. And, you know, tell a full anecdote and then you'd have to trim that down to stick it on the, the commentary. Um, oh, yeah. And then yeah, obviously yeah. some stuff had to be taken out for legal reasons. <laughs> wow. um, yeah. But yeah, he just, yeah, it sounds... But one of the one of the great images in, in your book, Gareth, um, that I really enjoyed was when you talk about when he would spend time away in, in Switzerland and he would just spend his time watching his Academy DVDs.
3: Mm, mm. Yeah, so he the- was... He was a big film fan still. Oh, yeah, yeah, lovely. You know, he loved films, and, and he'd always, you know, if I sat down with him and watched a film, he'd always say, wasn't that camera work great? You know, and the way that the the, you know, the, the lighting uh, cameraman got into that set, and, and so he was always appreciative of filmmaking as well as just watching it for entertainment, and um, you know, Monaco, where he lived in the summer, was a very sort of social place, and he'd always be at dinner parties, and you know be invited to the palace and you know you know it was just a constant mix of celebrities and society but when he went to switzerland in the winter you know he lived in a little i say a little town it, yeah it was a little town and um he had a chalet out of the way up a mountain and it was just him and his wife really and his family so they wouldn't be going to parties and things they'd go out to lunch they'd come back and put a movie on And I think that's where he was at his happiest, really, because he could just relax, he could just be himself and enjoy things. You know, he wasn't on show, he didn't have to wear a suit and tie to go out shopping, whereas in Monaco you tend to have to because it's such a small place. You're bound to bump into somebody. And Christina would always say, well, you can't wear jeans and an old sweater. Because if we go out and bump into somebody, they'll say, cool, hasn't Roger Moore let himself go? <laughs> um, which is true, isn't it? You know, they, they expected him to walk off a plane. You know, he, he'd fly to Los Angeles and they'd expect him to walk off a plane with, you know, immaculate hair and a suit on and a tie. And, you know, when you've been on an overnight flight, as you know, you, you're pretty tired when you get off. And the last thing you want is a press call. But UNICEF often arranged that. You know, he literally walked down the steps of a plane into a press call and and that's why christina would always say you have to look your best you have to look good because you know you're roger moore and you know people will criticize you if you turn up looking like an old tramp but in (laughs) switzerland to a certain extent in switzerland you put a pair of cords on an old sweater and nobody would blink an eye you know because nobody sort of said oh wow that's roger moore they would just see somebody in the shopping center going that bloke looks like roger moore doesn't it i mean very bizarre and if it was him (laughs) Um, what, what sort of movies did he like to watch?
1: Do you not, do you remember?
3: Well, he, he, I mean, the thing with Academy DVDs is they're almost always in a sort of a blank sleeve just with the title on. So you never really know much about it. There's no photos, there's no synopsis because the idea is they all have to be sort of fairly bland in order one doesn't appeal above another. So, you know, you, you'd open the box and there'd be 30, 40 DVDs in it and he'd just pick one out and watch it. Um, he liked dramas. He liked comedies. He didn't like sort of violent um, gangster-type films. He, he, he didn't really condone violence, uh, which is rather ironic, as he would always say, for someone who was always pictured with Wolf PPK. <laughs> um, but he loved just good entertainment, you know, that Christina would enjoy with him. Um, you know, if he put a Shakespearean film on, she'd fall asleep because she "Oh darn, oh, darn, this dialogue. And, um, you know, she just liked love stories and costume dramas. So, you know, he had a preference for them, I suppose, because his wife would stay awake throughout.
1: You mentioned uh, a couple of other of the bonds, Lazenby and and Connery. And I know that you've done some work with George Lazenby um, Mm. uh, previously and and that you also met Sean Connery briefly. Can you tell us a little uh, bit about that?
3: I met Sean Connery a few times. Oh, did show. you? Okay. Yeah, no, a few times. First time I met him was uh, with Walter Guttel, because we went to Terence Young's memorial service, which was in uh, uh, Victoria, actually, a church in Victoria. And Walter said, would you like to come? And I said, yeah, I'd love to come. And Desmond Llewellyn was there, which was nice. And Lois Maxwell was there. And Walter said to me, where are you going after this? And I said, well, I'm going back to Pinewood. He said, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Sean Connery was filming first night there at the time. So Walter went over, he said, Sean, Sean, come here. He said, this is Gareth. And Sean said, hi. He said, he's based at Pinewood. Would you give him a lift, please? i was <laughs> <laughs> sort of standing, standing there thinking, I don't believe this. And he looked at me, he said, I'm sorry, son, but I'm going to St. Albans now, so I'm not going back to Pinewood. And I said, Oh, thank you, thank you very much. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, when he was filming first night, I saw him around the studio quite a bit. And um, one day I was going to the mailroom and he walked past me in the opposite direction. And for some bizarre reason, I don't know why I did it, but I just sort of turned around and followed him because I thought, Well, I'm following the footsteps of this great actor here. And he got to his office and he stopped to open the door and he turned and saw me and he went, Hi and I sort of bowed and I said hello sir hello sir Hello, sir. but he used to go to the restaurant every day you know he'd be sitting in the restaurant and um, you know he'd always be pleasant, he'd always say hello if if you walked past him or you know he was in your line of sight and I spoke to him on the phone a couple of times so yeah he was was a nice man I wouldn't say he was instantly warm he's not the sort of character you feel you could sit down and have a chat with like Roger would be Um, I think he was slightly guarded and slightly suspicious I would say too of people but he came to Roger's dinner now let me think when this was now this was after Roger got his knighthood so that would be about what 2004 and Roger had a dinner party in the evening and Sean came along and as I was leaving the restaurant he was standing in the lobby and I said oh hello Sir Sean Um, I said we spoke on the phone you know because I arranged for him to be there you know Roger asked me to get in touch And he said, oh, yes, son, yes, how are you? I said, fine. He said, do me a favour. I said, what? He said, go and get me a taxi. And I said, yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) And I went went out. I thought, God, what am I doing here? Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, he was very nice, but not, as I say, not the sort of warm personality that you got with Roger. You know, he, he, I don't know, a bit suspicious of everybody, I think. And that came across in the way he sued everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then with,
1: with, with George, you did um, like fan conventions with George,
3: was it? Or Yeah, yeah, that came through Richard Keel because I knew Richard Keel. Um, I helped Richard with his book because I'd, I'd interviewed Richard for my book on Roger Moore. And then Richard said to me, I've written the book and I'm looking for a publisher. So I introduced him to my publisher who agreed to publish his book. So, you know, we, we had a friendship and we met for lunch when he came to London and uh, and he said look i'm coming over in november yeah november twenty two, twenty o two, 2002 for the 40th anniversary he said um i've been booked to do a convention um but i don't, don't you know i don't want to come in for two or three days i want to come in for a week or two uh could you maybe help program some stuff for me so i said yeah okay and he said and george lasenby's coming over and lois charles and Maud adams you know do you want to get us all together and do stuff so I said, yeah, okay. So I arranged for them to do a couple of conventions and go to the BAFTA tribute for Bond and go to the Royal Premier. And um, and we became friends. And after that, I think it was about a week in London and around London, we went to Paris and then to Germany, on to Hamburg, basically to promote the DVDs, which were riding on the back of the new film. So, you know, MGM had asked, they'd heard they were coming to town and asked if I would sort of get them to agree to do a couple of city promotion tours which we did so we all went to paris on the train and then we went from paris to hamburg and spent a few days in hamburg so you know we had a bit of fun at dinners and things and then george you know george was yeah he's a very pleasant guy and he said to me you know if anything else comes along that you can book me into yeah please do i'm always up for making a few quid <laughs> and uh, and so i yeah i got to know george i mean george was a nice guy but very arrogant you know he, he Nice guy, but he would really cause an argument in the phone box if he wanted. To. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he didn't take any nonsense from people. And sometimes it was a bit embarrassing, you know, when um, he said to a friend of mine one day, would you go to the hotel? Here's the key. Go to the hotel and get my phone charger. And my friend went, got this charger, came back. And George said, that's the wrong effing charger, you stupid idiot. And my friend said, don't you call me a stupid idiot? Who the hell do you think you are? So there's a row going on, and I'm thinking, oh, God. Um, so, yeah, George could be, you know, hard work at times. He's a nice guy, and he loved going to the premiere because he got to meet the Queen. And, uh, you know, this is something that he'd never done before. You know, for him it was a sort of second bite of the cherry, you know, this Bond adulation, because he'd been frozen out a little while, you know, by the by, the Bond world and by the Bond producers. And um, I was at the Albert Hall coming out. He, he was actually coming down the stairs with me, and Dana Broccoli was there and she, she turned to George and she said, well, 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 I'm glad you've finally grown up. And George <laughs> looked at her and said, I'm not here for you, missus. I said, come on, George. And I just pulled him <laughs> quickly. I said, oh, no,
2: no.
3: <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he could, he could be difficult when he wanted to be. And I'm sure he's the first to admit that, actually. That's crazy.
0: Coffee? Medium sweet. Two medium sweet.
1: Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. What's
0: the matter?
2: I don't feel so good. I feel so sleepy.
0: Is that all it does?
1: Beyond, obviously, working with Roger, who else have you worked with that sort of made a, a lasting impression on, on you?
3: Oh, God, well, I met so many people, and particularly through Roger. I mean, Britt Eklund is somebody I, I look after nowadays. She asked me to be her agent, and so I've looked after Britt for quite a few years now, and, and she's lovely. Maud Adams, absolutely lovely. They're Swedish, they're both Swedish, they're very easy personalities. Yeah. Uh, Richard, Keel was, Richard Keel was a great friend, I mean, a lovely, lovely friend. Whenever he came to London, even if we weren't sort of doing a, a convention or a book signing or something, he'd always phone me up and say, Do you want, you know, let's meet for dinner. And um, one time he was promoting Swatch SWAT, SWAT watches, and he said to me, I'm coming over with Diane and his youngest son and his then fiancé and he said, um, you know, Chris has never been to London before. I thought, you know, I'm working, but I thought maybe you and Diane would like to go out for dinner with Chris and his fiance and then go to see a show. So I said, OK. He said, I'll take care of it all. Don't worry. So he booked us dinner at Rules Restaurant. And then we were going to see the producers, you know, the Mel Brooks production. And we had a lovely dinner, went round to the theatre and got there with the tickets. Diane pulled the tickets out. And there was this silence at the box office and they said, bear with us a moment. They disappeared, came back and they said, we're ever so sorry. And Diane said, oh, no, he hasn't booked the wrong night. And they said, no, the wrong country. These are for Broadway. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But they were very nice about it. They actually found (laughs) us. They gave us a box to go sit in. (laughs) They saw the funny side. But no, Richard was a great guy and we'd always meet. And um, I think it was his last trip over. He he wasn't a well man, you know. He he was always slow. He had a walking stick, but as he got older, it became more difficult to get around, and he had a wheelchair. And he came over, um, and he was doing some promotion. And they asked him. I think it was. Um, it was the Bond. Now, what? I'm trying to think. What year was this? It might have been 2012. Actually, I think it was the the 50th anniversary, he came over and he was doing some Bond DVD promotion. And um, I had a call from Findus, you know, the frozen food people. And they said, how long is Mr. Keel in town for? And I said, he's only here for a few more days. Would he be interested in doing um, an ad campaign for us? And I said, well, possibly, what's it for? And they said, we're bringing out this new fish burger called The Bigger Bite. And (laughs) And the slogan is something like, get your jaws around this. And they said, what we'd like to do is have Mr. Keel holding one of these burgers. It's just a print campaign, you know, for magazines and internet. And I thought, okay, fine. So I phoned Richard up at his hotel. I said, "Uh, what do you think? He said, how much? And I said, well, Richard, you know, they're offering so much and it was quite a lot of money. And I said, they want you for three hours. Yeah, sure, I'll do that. No problem. So off he went and did it. About a month or two later, I got a card in the post from his wife, Diane, and she said, thank you for my new kitchen. (laughs) It obviously paid for the kitchen. Um, But no, he he was a great man, very intelligent man. You know, he'd written a couple of film scripts, he'd written a couple of books, and a lot of people thought because he was tall and he always played these sort of slightly villainous roles, he couldn't be, you know, terribly intelligent. But he was, he was very intelligent and great conversationalist. And and a great PR man, because, you know, they asked him, as I say, to do these promotion tours for the DVDs. And he would sell them. I mean, he would really draw people in and really sell the product. He was a great salesman. So they always got good value out of him. And, And when he was selling his books, you know, he'd be at conventions. And you'd have a lot of people sort of staring and sort of walking past. And he'd always place his hand out, you know, to shake their hands. And they'd come over and he'd say, hey, would you like to see my book? And he'd sell them a bloody book, you know,
0: these people who are just walking past.
3: <laughs> and um, and sometimes, I remember once we were in the Science Museum, there was a Bond exhibition on there, and uh, he was signing photographs. And somebody said to him, which one do you prefer? And he nudged me, and he said, come here. I said, what? He said, if anybody asks which is my favourite or which I prefer, always sell, push the one that's not selling very well, all right? <laughs> so... <laughs> you know he'd have a great big pile of one photograph and say yeah that's my favorite and they'd all buy it so he's very very clever salesman and um lovely lovely man and it was so sad really to see him sort of deteriorate in his last year or two because um, he he had so much life but his body was sadly failing
1: there's a very small intersection here gareth because um i interviewed sir roger I think a few days after, or maybe the day after Richard had died. So maybe you would have put the call through. (laughs) Mm. Um, And I asked Roger about Richard and he played a beautiful tribute to him. Um, He he said he was a big man with a big heart and uh, Mm. it was just a really touching tribute from him. He obviously thought very highly of of Richard as well. Mm. Um, But talking of Roger's books, you... um, like what's the technical way of saying
3: it did you ghostwrite
1: the book's with him or
3: because he's yeah, the author no. right or yeah he's the author my name's on the inside cover page no because i mean he said to me do you, do you want to take a credit with me and i said no it's your book I, you know I'm, I'm never you know i don't push myself enough maybe but i think when somebody like roger writes a book it should be him that promotes it and does all the publicity, and therefore it should be his name on the front cover, shouldn't it? I mean, why would I put my name? So I'd always say, yeah, as long as my name appears inside the book, that's fine, and as long as I get paid, that's fine. Um So, yeah, I was his ghostwriter, and, um, you know, we, we did, what, four books together? So it's very interesting experience, you know, to sit down with him, and we just chatted, you know, we just recorded and uh, I'd go away and type it up and send it to him, and he'd tweak it and play around with it, add bits, take bits out. And, and then, you know, we just moulded a book, or four books, really. Um, so it was a very nice, enjoyable process, because, you know, we were just chatting, and that's the lovely thing. You know, when you sit down with somebody for hours on end, and you just chat about a subject that you enjoy, and then all of a sudden the book comes out of it. So, yeah, it was great fun.
2: Did you feel like you really got to know him even better working on those books?
3: I think I did. And it was because really, particularly talking about his childhood, uh, because I didn't know a great deal about his childhood. I mean, I knew bits and pieces. But, you know, he was telling me stories about his friends at school and his first girlfriend. And um, I think, I don't know whether it's in his book, I can't remember now, but where he lost his virginity. And uh, I think we were driving through a part of London one day, and he said, you, you see that doorway there? I said, yeah, he said, it used to be a tailor shop, that's where I had a knee trembler. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> you, can, yeah. um, you get all these stories and, uh, yeah, I did feel I got to know him better and he was very open with me. I mean, there were some things he didn't really want to talk about. He didn't want to talk about his marriage breakups mm. because he felt it unfair and at the time his first wife was still alive doing Van Stein and Louisa was still alive and he felt it very unfair to say things about them without giving them the right to reply so he said no I'll, he said obviously i'll mention some of the happier stories and obviously the marriage broke you know the marriage breakups but i don't want to go into detail because it's not fair on them so he's very gentlemanly in that respect and uh, and there were one or two you know christina would often hover in the background and he'd be discussing somebody he worked with. And she said, oh, darling, she was very pretty. He said, yes. She said, did you? He said, yes. (laughs) uh, You know, it it was fun. But um, ultimately, he was a real gentleman and didn't want to say anything nasty about anybody, apart from David Niven's wife, who he said he would gladly say the most nasty things because she was a real, real horrible person.
1: I've read the books about Niven and, yeah, the stories about her are, uh, mm. yeah, quite yeah. distressing, I think.
3: She, yeah, his second wife, Hyordis. his first wife died in a tragic accident. She, she fell down some steps into a cellar. I mean, very, very sad. She opened the door thinking it was into another room and stepped through into this black hole, really. But no, Hjordis, she was really nasty. And when Niven was getting very ill with, um, well, he had Parkinson's, didn't he, and MS. And um, when he was getting ill, she was really horrible to him. And, you know, when when you see your husband struggling and you make fun of him and laugh, you know, Roger couldn't bear it and he hated her. She was an alcoholic. He said, you know, whenever she pulled up and opened the car door, all the bottles would drop out. So, he yeah, he willingly said all sorts about her simply because she deserved it. And then there were other people that he just wouldn't talk about. <laughs> well, yeah, there were a few people he worked with who he said, I don't want to name, I don't want to give them publicity. Um, you know, they they were really stupid, nasty people. Um, there was one guy in America he worked with who was pretty much horrible to all the crew. And Roger said to him one day, he said, why are you so nasty to everybody? The makeup girl was in tears. You know, his costume person was in tears. The script supervisor was in tears. Why are you so nasty? And he said, I'm not here to win a popularity contest. I'm here to be an actor. And Roger said, well, you've lost on that count, so why not go for the second prize of being popular? <laughs> um, and he said, but I don't want to name him. I mean, he told me. It was an, It doesn't matter now. It was an actor called Ray Danton who didn't really go on to do much. Um, but he had... A really nasty time on a later film called The Quest with um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, who he hated with a passion. Hated him with a passion. Um, you know, he said, I don't know what this man's on, but some days he turns up on set and doesn't know where he is. And, um, you know, the thing that got Roger was there was a young guy, you know, that obviously a lot of people contact the production asking you know can we visit the set but this charity contacted the production and said we have this young boy who's dying of cancer It was leukemia and he's a very big fan of jean-claude van damme and you know it's one of his last wishes to to meet jean-claude van damme so he was invited to the set and this ambulance pulled up outside and the boy was put into a wheelchair and brought onto the set and they said where's jean-claude and jean-claude was in his dressing room and refused to come out he said i don't want to meet this sick child Oh, and God. Roger went in and dra- Roger went in and dragged him out, and said all sorts of quite nasty things to him. And he said to me, "He said I would never work with that man again." He said he's a horrible, horrible man, and they never got on at all. And it's it's, it's a shame because you know Jean Claude Van Damme wanted him in the film, right? But mm. I don't know whether it was a, a sort of a touch of jealousy or whether he was just totally mad. I don't know. But they they just didn't get on together at all. What a shame. Was there a particular
1: part of Roger's career that he was most proud of?
3: Well, of course, UNICEF, without fail. uh, He was always very willing to support UNICEF in anything he could and talk about them. And he said, really, that was the most fulfilling part of his life because he was able, he felt, to make some small change. You know, he was able to do something. And um, he would always talk, you know, even if he was there to talk about Bond, He would turn the conversation round to UNICEF at the end, and he would tell first-hand stories. You know, he would talk about how one dollar could save two two children's lives because you know he'd pull out this packet of rehydration salts, which he always kept in his jacket pocket, and he would say for a child who's suffering with dysentery or severe diarrhoea, these hydration salts, and he would sort of show them. They cost a a dollar, you can save two children's lives. If you give me a dollar, you're saving two lives. And people, you know, they, oh, wow. Oh. And when it, we, we, we toured in these last sort of years, we toured around the UK and Ireland uh, with a show, which is basically him on stage and me prompting him with questions and nudging him. And the last 10 minutes of the show would be about UNICEF because he wanted to talk about UNICEF. And we had collection buckets. Just, you know, we said, you know, just a bit of loose change. If you can afford it on the way out, there'll be some collection buckets. And I think in five years we raised something like £30,000. And that was just in loose change. And the government at the time um, pledged to, to double some of those donations. So I think it became something like forty or even £50,000. And that made a massive difference. I mean, just, just, you know, to say 50 cents saves a child's life. To raise £50,000, poor... You know how many children's lives did that save? So he would talk about UNICEF and and would say you don't have to be a multi-billionaire, you don't have to be a huge company to make a difference. You can just be somebody who donates a very small amount of money, or who maybe sells, you know, flags as we used to call them, badges and pins and things and greetings cards. Um, you know, you sell those or you buy those, you make a difference, and and that made. A lot of impact, I think it had a lot of impact, and we certainly had a lot of letters from people saying that they were so touched at the end of the show. They were, you know, they were in tears as they left,
2: and uh, you know that 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 made him very happy. I have to say. Do you think he played a part in getting other people, other celebrities and actors involved in UNICEF?
3: Oh yeah, he did. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly, Ewan McGregor was somebody he he, he sort of brought in, and um, Ray Fiennes was another. Um, Yeah, there were quite a few who were interested in supporting UNICEF and Roger was asked, you know, would you speak to them? Would you sort of chat them through what we do and the importance? And and he talked to David Beckham and he just sort of persuaded them, if you like, if there were any doubts in their minds, he persuaded them that UNICEF is the best charity to support because 92% of all money raised goes to children, only 8% goes in administration. And because a lot of charities, you know, they come from a lot of stick where the chief executives are on very high wages and, you know, half the money raised goes to funding the staff. But UNICEF, very clear, 8% goes to the staff, 92% to the children.
1: Uh, Amazing uh, as an ambassador to do that. You know, he's touring his to promote his own book. I I imagine he probably sold a lot of books for it as well but then using his own time to raise money. I mean, I can't imagine there's a lot of ambassadors out there who would do that, go to those lengths. So it's quite an amazing mm. uh, testament to his character, I think.
3: Mm. And, well, and, you know, people would ask about UNICEF as well because we had a and a at the end of the interview, of the stage interview, and, you know, quite a few people would ask about UNICEF and he'd say, I'll, I'll come to that in a moment, if I may. And then, as I say, that was the way to, to sort of end the show to talk about UNICEF. And, and he, he did bring quite a few tears to, to quite a few people's eyes i mean he, he would joke he would say yeah the show's so boring they're all crying <laughs> but um <laughs> no no he, he he did make a difference um uh, my colleague
1: tom who does the podcast with us we, we came to see you on tour i think it was in richmond um oh yeah to do the, to, to, to see him do his, his talk and um it was so busy i think we ended up sitting on the floor at the front because it was so packed quite a testament for a man of his age to 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 fill a fill an audience like that was it like that everywhere you went
3: on the tour pretty much yeah i mean pretty much the last show we did was at the um festival hall and we had about two and a half thousand people at that one but generally the theaters would all be in the sort of thousand to twelve hundred seat range and we pretty much sold out wherever we went um you know it's And I think for Roger, you know, it wasn't so much about the money or anything like that. It was about standing in the wings and seeing all these people. And he'd nudge me and say, they're here to see me, you know. And I'd say, (laughs) yeah, you better be good tonight. (coughs) And and as an an actor at that age, you know, he was in his mid-80s. You know, an actor in your mid-80s to have a thousand people or more pack a theatre to see you. I mean, it, it's really quite touching, isn't it? Because, you know, actors crave an audience. They crave that reaction, that, that sort of interaction with, with, with an audience. And to walk out on stage, sit in an armchair and have a standing ovation before you've said anything. I mean, it's very touching. And uh, and he really enjoyed it. And he loved having questions as well because he never quite knew what was coming.
1: Yeah, I imagine that
3: was quite a, quite a fun experience to do that. Um,
1: do you... Um uh, uh, as, uh, as a Bond fan what was
3: what's your favorite of Roger's uh Bond films Bond film um I think it was The Spy Who Loved Me it was the first one I saw at the cinema right and and that sort of hooked me because you know that that sort of spectacle I mean and it was at the time you know to see a man parachuting off the side of a mountain um and to see a, a car that goes underwater and to have a a villain with these steel teeth and I mean, it was all so exciting, and, and, you know, I was probably about, what, four years old then. Uh, and it was just a different world, you know, this escapism, this this wonderful music, the, these wonderful locations. And 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 that sort of really hooked me. And, and you know, Roger was my Bond. I grew up with him. And, and people say, oh, you always say Roger's your favourite. And I said, well, yeah, but I grew up with him, you know. And I think it's true to an extent, whatever film you see, you know, what what your first Bond film is, is the film that really you say, that actor is my Bond. You know, if you see Casino Royale for the first time on the big screen, Daniel Craig is your Bond. If you saw Die Another Day, you'd probably say, Pierce Brosnan's my Bond. And so to a certain extent, it's who you've grown up with. And, you know, every two years I'd go and see one of his films, and it was uh, one of his Bond films. It was, you know, it it was a great occasion to go and see a film at the cinema, and you'd have to queue in those days. You know, you'd have to queue around the block to get in. And so the anticipation, you can imagine, can't you, you know, as a little boy queuing outside the cinema for half an hour to get in to see this wonderful film that's about to come on. And, uh, and Roger, you know, to my mind, Roger was Bond. You
2: must have had pinch me moments in your career.
3: Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, you know, to, to be sitting in the back of a car with him and, you know, arriving at premieres and arriving at sort of special events. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's quite bizarre, you know, it's quite bizarre. But um, I think, you know, when when he died, there was such an outpouring of love. And, you know, when people die, you always hear from their friends, you know, so-and-so puts a tweet out or a Facebook message or speaks to BBC News. But there were thousands and thousands of people who he'd never met, he never knew. You know, he, he, he touched their lives and they were all sort of paying tribute to him. And you think, God, this is a man who grew up in South London, the son of a policeman. And he's now died having touched millions of lives. Mm. I mean, it's, it's quite a testament, you know, and and, and and I suppose quite emotional in a way, you know, to think that all of a sudden there are millions of people queuing up to pay tribute to him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he really was a beloved
1: uh, actor, patron of, of the charities uh, a beloved bond I think um by many people so well just a just a huge loss. Um mm. so I d I can't imagine how, how you dealt with it. But um yeah, just a very sad sad loss there. But um yeah. Do you still work with Roger's family
3: in any way? Uh I, I yeah, I help his wife. I saw Christina uh, a few weeks ago. I went down to Monaco to see her. And um I have my office at Pinewood still. And the nice thing about Pinewood is they named a stage after him. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever driven past, but um as you drive up Pinewood Road on the right, you can see the stage. It you know, it dominates that side of the studio. And it's lit up in the winter months. So, you know, you drive past at five in the afternoon and it's lit up. And it's really you know, really A wonderful testament, you know, because he was based there for many years. He made a lot of films there. And we had his memorial event there. And um, Princess, I say Princess, I should say Countess, Countess Sophie of Wessex uh, came to unveil the stage on the day. And we had lots of people there in attendance. Michael Caine came to make a speech. uh, Joan Collins. um, Michael and Barbara from E.ON came, made a speech and um, David Williams came on behalf of UNICEF because Roger had got David Williams involved in UNICEF. (laughs) And so, you know, we had four or five people making speeches about him. And it was a magical afternoon because it was an October Sunday afternoon and the sun was shining, it was a beautiful day. And we had his cars in 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 the garden, so we had the Lotus Esprit, which Eon had brought in, and we had the Aston Martin from the Persuaders, which the owner had brought along, and a saint. Volvo so we had these wonderful cars and um, you know everybody just had champagne in the gardens and had little sandwiches and it was a sort of an afternoon tea and it just felt very British and very appropriate <laughs> to have this sort of celebration of Pinewood and then we all filter into the gardens so yeah it was, it was a lovely event we had 300 people there it was a lovely event.
1: Having lived abroad for so, for so long do you think Roger saw Pinewood as uh, as sort of a home from home for him?
3: Well, yeah, because he used to live down the road from Pinewood at Denham. And um, and I think, you know, when he, he went tax exile very reluctantly. And, um, you know, there's always stuff in the papers and the newspapers. I mean, at the moment, when we're recording this, the Chancellor of the UK is in the newspaper about, uh, well, about his wife, really, isn't it? And that she's yeah. a non-dom. Roger had to give up his life and his home to move abroad because at the time tax was 97p in the pound. And he didn't want to leave Britain, but his accountant and his lawyer and his bank manager all said, look, Roger, you're working for nothing, and if you don't leave now, you'll have nothing, because the money you're owning as bond is your future, you know, you, you need to look after it. And so reluctantly, he left the country, and he left knowing he could never probably come back, and only as a visitor. And that was a brave move on his part, because he gave up a life, and... Didn't really want to, but, you know, necessity was such. And, uh, and the sad thing was when he died, his, his final wish was to be buried in Denham, where he lived. But the accountant said, well, you can't because the UK tax authority have a law which says if your final resting place is the UK, you lose your tax exile status so you have to pay all the tax that you've avoided oh, in the last God. 40 years so you know roger said you know towards the end roger said i don't care where i am you know at the end of the day just sprinkle me out to see if you need to because you know i don't want my family and whatever i've earned go to the tax man because you know i think when you've planned so carefully and given up your life in this country to be told if you're buried here you have to give it all back. I mean, it's, I think that's a bit unjust, but there we are. That's the law.
2: Yeah.
1: Gareth, as a, as a Bond fan, um, do you have, uh, I mean, you've obviously mentioned The Spy Love Me. It, what, what are your favourite Bond films generally?
3: Oh, gosh. Um, I like From Russia With Love, the early Sean Connery. Yes. Thriller and Goldfinger as well, I have to say. I mean, the early Sean Connery films I think are very good because they set the style, you know, they set the standard, really. And, uh, and, and you know, the editing on them is so fantastic. You know, it's so tight. And you just don't get a second to breathe. You know, from Russia with Love, keeps moving, moving, moving. It's a great thriller. So I, I love those two. And, um, and I think, you know, Pierce Brosnan, Goldeneye, you know, that was a, a sort of a breath of fresh air after a, a big gap of six years. And you know it sort of reinvigorated the franchise, didn't it? So yeah, I enjoy that. And Daniel Cray, I mean, favourite for me was Skyfall, and um, you know it, it's it's such a brilliant film, I thought. And we saw I saw it with Roger because we were going out on tour, and Eon asked if he wanted to go to the premiere. And he said, I can't because we're going to be in Basingstoke that night. <laughs> and and they said, Oh, well, you know, that's a shame because and he said, Well, I'd love to see it because I'm gonna be asked, you know, I'm gonna to be touring, so I'm gonna be asked about, you know, have you seen the new film? And they said, Well, would you like a preview of it? And Roger said, Yeah. So I spoke to them and I said, Look, we've got Saturday morning free before the tour starts. And they literally just finished. I mean, it was one of those films where, you know, Post production ended two days before the premiere, so you know they'd literally just finished the film, and I think the premiere was on the Monday, so we got to see it on the Saturday morning. We went into sony's preview theater in golden Square, and there were just four four of us or five of us I can't remember four or five of us and um you know, Roger turned around at the end and he said, "My God, that was a bloody good film <laughs> and it was so yeah, you know yeah. it's, I mean skyfall for me, and it was a lovely experience to be sitting there, you know. Again, one of those pinch-me moments, isn't it? You're sitting in the cinema watching the new Bond film before anybody else has seen it with Roger Moore. And, and it's a good one. A thing, <laughs> yeah, it's a, good, a similar thing happened with Spectre. Spectre, we were on tour. I think we were in Liverpool and couldn't go to the premiere and couldn't have a preview even because, you know, we were all over the place by that time. We were touring. And so I booked the local cinema near Pinewood, uh, Gerrard's Cross. And, uh, and I said, you know, when we get down south... Roger was staying nearby there for a couple of days I said we'll go and see the film so we went over to the everyman in Gerrard's Cross and I'd actually been in to see the manager only because I asked if Roger's driver could park in her space so that, <laughs> so that, he, so that we didn't have to worry about you know parking you know because it's, it's quite tricky. and she said yeah of course, of course, of course and, uh, and so we arrived and, and Stuart our driver parked in the space around the back of the cinema and we came in and um, It was only about five minutes before Curtain Up because they'd been stuck in traffic. So they got a drink and we sat down in the back row. Nobody really noticed him. This is the fun thing. You know, we're sitting in the back row of the cinema. Nobody really noticed him. And then the manager came in to introduce the film, which is something, if you've not been to an everyman, they do it quite a lot. And he came in and he said, welcome to the everyman and we're about to see, you know, the the new Bond film. And I'm delighted that, um, you know, we're doing this tonight. And, and Daniel Craig, the second best James Bond. <laughs> and I could see people sort of turning as if to say, what did he just say? What? Second best Bond? What? And Christina was sitting next to Roger, obviously. And Roger said, what did he say, darling? She said, the second best Bond. Oh, who's the best then? And she said, well, you are my darling. And these people are going, shh, shh, shh. You know, as if there's some old madman in the back <laughs> um, And then, of course, at the end of the film... When the lights came up, they were all turning around going, oh, my God. Uh, so, that, you know, again, that's quite a special moment, isn't it? just think, you know, we, we, we've seen this new Bond film. Nobody knew he was there. And then at the end, they're all going, oh, my God, Roger Moore's just been sitting you know, sitting behind us. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was funny. Oh, and then did you have to go
1: see No Time to Die without Roger then?
3: <laughs> well, I did, yes, unfortunately, yes, I did. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, he was very gracious about Daniel. You know, he, he said Daniel Craig is a bloody good Bond. You know, he's a bloody good actor. And, uh, and I think, you know, he would have been gracious about No Time to Die. He probably wouldn't have liked the ending. No. But, um, yeah, he'd have been very gracious about it.
1: Indeed. Right. I think we've uh, yeah kept you for long enough, Gareth. I really appreciate you talking to us tonight. But um, we, we like to ask our guests the question. So, Brendan, do
2: you want to do the honours? Who do you think should play the next James Bond? Oh, well, apart from me. <laughs> um,
3: actually, um, I would say Sam Hugan. Is it pronounced Hugan? Uh, from Outlander. Only because Roger made a film with him about 11 years ago, <clears throat> 10, 11 years ago. And um, he was a very young guy then. He was the, sort of the romantic lead. And Roger said, this guy is good. He's going to be a big star one day. And Interesting. I think he did, he? mm. he's, he's certainly making his way, and I know he's been mentioned in several of these sort of yeah, he's always new, touted bond articles, yeah, and I think he'd like to do it certainly um, he's about I think he's about 40-ish now, so yeah you know, he's, he's you know he's not too old, he's still got uh, and if you know if they get their their asses in gear and get a film out every couple of years, there's no reason he couldn't do another five or six films, you know yeah and he's got Roger's blessing. <laughs> Well, you know, Roger said he's going to be a big star and I think, you know, for Roger to say that he saw something in him, so yeah I I think he's certainly got something about him
2: And and in terms of style, would you like them to go a bit more Roger-style Bond in in sort of tone?
3: Um, Yeah, I think they have to go back a little bit because Daniel Clay played it so grittily Mm. and so sort of real that you can't really go any further, can you? You can't sort of become more serious than that, and And I think, yeah, you know, to have a little bit more humour, a little bit, a bit like Piers Brosnan when he took over from Timothy Dalton. You know, Timothy Dalton was a very serious Bond. Licence to Kill was a very serious film. And people were saying, "Eh, okay, um, let's go back a little bit. And Piers Brosnan came along and added that little touch, didn't he? That little touch of sort of, that little twinkle in his eye, that little touch of comedy. And it it worked well. So, you know, you need a director who can strike that balance. You know, let's have some fun with this, but let's not make it too silly so uh, i i think it wouldn't harm put it that way Thank
1: very much yeah well gareth it's been a, an absolute pleasure having you on and raising an eyebrow my life with sir roger moore it's a terrific book um just full of um, amazing stories and i think you've really brought, it, brought
3: brought brought your story to life in a fantastic way how, how do people find the book Well, it's available, as they say, in all good bookshops, and you can get it through Amazon or Waterstones or WH Smith websites. So it's still out there. It's available in hardback and paperback. Paperback's cheaper, so if you want a paperback. (laughs) Um, But, no, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm very touched. I wrote the book not thinking it would ever get published. I thought it was just for me, you know, just my sort of series of memoirs, if you like, my anecdotes and stories. And... um, I mentioned it to a publisher I'd worked with several times and he said, can I read it? And the next thing I know, he said, we want to publish this. So that was quite, well, very humbling actually. Yeah.
1: And is there anything else that you're working on right now that you can tell us about? Or um, are you just sort of uh, nose at the grindstone?
3: Well, busy, busy, but no, I had a book come out last month, um, called J Arthur rank, the rise and fall of a film, uh, Hang on, I'm looking at the cover. J. Arthur Rank, The Rise and Fall of a Film Empire. Um, J. Arthur Rank established Pinewood Studios back in the 1930s. a huge empire. And if you've ever seen a Rank film, like a carry-on film, for instance, you see The Man with the Golden Gong introducing Mm. the film. Um, Well, that was J. Arthur Rank. An absolutely fantastic character, amazing character. So that book came out recently. and I've got one or two other ideas I'm working on now, but that that Rank book's my 20th book, so I'm into my 21st book. I know, I'm not old enough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i'll definitely be picking that one up but uh, brendan if people want to get hold of the a- james bond a to z podcast how do they get hold of us uh,
2: on social media at james bond a to z that's on facebook instagram and twitter and if they want to email the show
1: you can get us at podcast at james a to we're also on Kofi, so you can buy us a coffee that's ko dash fi com forward slash james bond a to z Um, and you can donate as little or as much as you like as a one-off or a recurring payment, but it all goes to uh, supporting the show and helping us to get amazing guests like Gareth on. So uh, yeah. Do you mean I I get paid for this? (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll cut you in the profits when we start making some Gareth, Um, (laughs) but thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you taking the time and uh, you've been a terrific guest and hopefully we'll get you on again uh, in the future um, to talk more bond um, but yeah thank you it all just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week ciao the James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley the podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley
3: with music by Tom Ingomells, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly